Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good evening, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! We have talked before a little bit about textiles, different types of textiles. Uh, we've talked about silk making, weaving, um, things made out of flax and hemp and wool, of course. Um, cotton. Yes. Also a big, a big crop. And tonight we're going to talk about a specific type of textile, which is a tapestry. Yay! I feel like in uh, yes. ye old medieval films that we are all familiar with, yes. uh, we usually see tapestries hanging on walls in yep. castles. Um, often there's a like a hidden door behind it that right. somebody you know <laughs> hides somehow. Anyway. Yes. Uh, Other than being a piece of set dressing, what's a tapestry? Yes. So, obviously, the hidden door is not necessarily (laughs) accurate, of course. It's not required. Right. Um, But yes, they are definitely hung on walls. This is sort of the primary thing about a tapestry, is that it is probably a wall hanging. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is, of course, for decoration, but also given the state of medieval things like castles, um, insulation... (laughs) Um, you sound dampening, you know, it, mm-hmm. they served a lot of nice purposes as well. And, you know, of course, being very decorative, um, expensive, a way of showing off all this stuff. Um, so technically, we're going to go over two definitions of tapestry. Mm-hmm. Um, technically, a tapestry is a woven fabric in which the design is woven in. Okay. Right. So the entire thing is woven not stitched. However, OED, Oxford English Dictionary, definition of a tapestry, 1A, does say that it can be a textile fabric decorated with designs of ornament or pictorial subjects, painted, embroidered, or woven in colors, used for wall hangings, curtains, covers for seats, to hang from windows or balconies on festive occasions, etc. Especially Mm. such a decorated fabric in which a weft containing ornamental designs in colored wool or silk, gold or silver thread, etc., is worked with bobbins or brooches and pressed close with a comb on a warp of hemp or flax stretched in a frame, often loosely applied to imitative textile fabrics. All right. So essentially the OED says that a tapestry can be the woven tapestry, which is what we all think of technically, but acknowledges that a tapestry can also refer to something that is not woven, mm-hmm. as our final example of today, of course, will be, which is the Bayou Tapestry, which is really an embroidery, mm-hmm. but is called a tapestry. <laughs> the most and it is called a tapestry famous. because, of course, it hung on the walls. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And it's decorative and pictorial and all of those other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yes, the OED gives us, you know, leave to call anything that is a sort of decorative fabric a tapestry um and as it points out right wall hangings and curtains and covering windows and all this other stuff are the common but could be used to cover something like a seat mm-hmm. right um so that sense of um 
which I think frequently we might think of embroidery as being used there, but you could certainly use a tapestry for a covering. Um, and also, of course, certain embroideries might be thought of as tapestries. So there we go. Yes. So it's a complicated situation. Yes. Um, okay. Now, that being said, all right, we'll get in a little bit to the technical stuff that I said. <laughs> um, for anyone here who doesn't weave on a loom, um, first of all, looms, of course, are a very old technology. We talked about them, I think, when we talked about our fabric textile episode, mm -hmm. weaving. And one of the things frequently that you'll find from ancient eras um, in graves and also just, you know, in kind of what were probably rubbish heaps, <laughs> um, you'll find things like spindles. Um, okay. And so weaving um, and thread making are really, really, really old crafts, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, that being said, tapestries as we think of them, um, the evidence... You know, this is the problem, of course, right? Evidence for fabric disappears, right? I mean, right. We we have like we do have some really really old fabric, but it doesn't last real well when it's buried. I guess is the point. Um, and so, yeah, it it can be hard to find really old evidence of woven cloth to begin with, and certainly hard to find evidence that a woven cloth had a picture woven into it. Yeah. If right? you only have little fragments or whatever. Yes. So it can be very hard to know what ancient tapestries, like, how, did they exist? What did they look like? Stuff like this. Mm -hmm. um, so weaving is certainly very ancient. Looms are really ancient. But <laughs> uh, tapestries... You know, the evidence we have for them, the fragments we have left tend to be a little less ancient just because, um, you know, it, it's hard to, it's hard for it to last, basically. Um, so, um, generally speaking, when we're talking about tapestries, these are made on looms, um, that are pretty big. So, um, generally, uh, and, you know, size can depend, of course. So there are smaller tapestries, but generally speaking, because of the way they're used, they tend mm -hmm. to be fairly large. Um, if you've walked around a museum and looked at medieval or Renaissance tapestries from Europe, they tend to be really, really, really big. Sure. Um, and that, of course, is <laughs> like, those are huge, right? Those are the really, so they do come in slightly smaller sizes than the like, you know, 10 by 10 feet or 10 by 20 feet or whatever you may have seen, right? Um, but that being said, they do yeah, frequently tend castle. to be big, right? They mm -hmm. do tend to be very big. Um, so on a loom, the warp threads, this is, you know, warp, like warp speed. <laughs> yes. Um, so warp threads, generally speaking, those are the ones that are the um, permanent threads that you will then weave through to create mm -hmm. your picture. Um, and those so, are usually up and down. <laughs> right. Long longitude, I guess. Yeah, when you, right. when you are doing the weaving, in my experience, they're sort of like going from you away. Yes, yeah. And the bigger, like the wider your loom is, the more you can put 
in your loom. Like yeah. the bigger piece of fabric you can make. Like you right. can make a really long piece of fabric that's narrow, but if you're, you know, you need the wider loom to hold more warp threads if you yes. want. A wide a wider, piece of fabric, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and we are talking about wide, um, wide looms, right? Mm -hmm. So the loom, yes, as you said, the loom has to be as wide as the picture is. <laughs> yeah. Which is going to be a some feet, right. generally. So if you're, if you're, if your tapestry is 10 feet by 20 feet, you have to have basically a 10 foot wide loom. Yeah. Pretty much. Or 20 if it's the other way. <laughs> right. Which is, which is big. Um, and looms could easily be like seven, eight feet wide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, or bigger. I mean, they could be huge. So, yeah. So, um, that's the usual way. There are instances, um, certainly in Europe, at least, of the warp threads going horizontally. So that actually <clears throat> can happen. But generally speaking, when you say warp, you mean up and down longitude. <laughs> And you're weaving the weft, that's W-E-F-T, weft, yeah. horizontally through them. Mm -hmm. Right? So that's, that is sort of the traditional, that's usually what people mean. Um, and the picture is made with the weft. So we're talking weft, weft-faced <laughs> imagery here. Um, and so this generally means that... Um, a tapestry can be viewed from either the front or the back. So traditionally, um, you work from the back. So the, the side that's facing up when you're working on it is usually the back. And then when you're done, oh. you'll take it off the loom and flip it over, and that's the front. Um, now, in Europe, they didn't necessarily expect you to look at the back. Um, the backs generally look pretty good, they're, you know, but they're maybe not quite as neat and tidy um, you'd leave little threads in case you needed to fix something, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And sometimes the back would actually be covered. You might actually cover it in something to help stiffen or set, you know, the the tapestry. And so what happens in restoration, which is fun and exciting, of course, is that you might remove the back to clean the tapestry very carefully, and you'll notice that the colors on the back have been better preserved. Sure. Right? Because it hasn't been bleached in the sunlight or whatever, you know. Um, so there's this kind of fun, interesting <laughs> side to when they do preserve tapestries, especially that might have a back um, that, that was covered, right? Um, the alternative, of course, is sometimes it was just hanging on the wall the whole time. It doesn't have a back, but because it's been against the wall, you know, when you clean it, you realize how nice and bright the colors on the back are. Um, but generally speaking, European tapestries are meant to be viewed from the front. <laughs> but that is not the case with all tapestries. Um, so we might as well go a little bit out. Generally speaking, I think this is actually mentioned in the OED definition, right? But um, the thread, right, wool is sort of the most common, generally speaking, in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, but you definitely then, you know, as you got more expensive, so some of the ones we'll talk about later, which are the really expensive ones that are now hanging in the museums, um, you might have sort of gold or silver thread as well. Um, frequently that would, or silk. Okay. Um, and sometimes silk that was like sort of covered in gold or silver, right? Those are for the really big time ones. <laughs> um, 
So that's sort of the basics. Um, but we should point out that, of course, most cultures have weaving or have had mm-hmm. weaving throughout history. I mean, um, so really clothes. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah, so some really famous other tapestries. Um, China, um, at least as early as the Tang dynasty, sort of like 618-ish to 907, I think, um, mm-hmm. had silk silk tapestries that they wove that spelled generally K-E-S-I, Kesu. And um, these tapestries are meant to be seen from both sides. These are completely reversible. Okay. Um, and are gorgeous, you know, as with all art forms, this is an art form that's definitely still around. Um, they're really incredible. Uh, and some of the earliest ones were found in tombs, right? So this is, of course, what happens. I mean, things that are this incredible get buried with people, and then hopefully they survive, right? <laughs> hopefully it's dry and things survive. Um, so there are some tombs from people who died in the six, 600s, basically, where they did find some um, fragments of these tapestries. Um, there's a... Well, one, there's a tomb of a woman, and there are some objects, including like a wooden female figure who's dressed in silk clothing and wears a belt that is a tapestry. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So do they think the figure represented the tomb's occupant yes that seems to be the yeah the conclusion Mm. yes (laughs) um and so this is also a good point that in this case these pieces of tapestry frequently are a little bit smaller um so some of them are still big ish right so they could be a, a couple feet by a couple feet but they could also be a little bit smaller right so like the belt um they could these definitely could be put in furniture, could be worn, you know, because they're reversible. So you don't necessarily have to hang them on the wall. Um, although you could. There are also cases in which, um, like a painted scroll might have a case that is made of a tapestry. Oh, <laughs> so you're sort of using okay. art to encase your art, right? Nice. Um, yeah. Or, you know, just to make a really nice sort of holder for your scroll or whatever sort of important scroll it might be. Um, yeah, so these are some of the early ones. Um, for a while, they it was thought they didn't originate maybe till the Song Dynasty, which sort of comes next, but mm-hmm. that has been pushed back, right? They found them in these tombs where unequivocally, you know, um, they're, they're from earlier. So this is very early, right? I mean, it's the 600s. So this is very early yeah. silk tapestry okay. work. Really incredible. Um, and one of the fun things about this is that one of the practitioners, medieval practitioners, so in the 12th century, um, is a woman who is named. Um, one of the sort of most famous ones attributed to her that's still around um, is sort of known as the butterfly um, and, let's see, oh, butterfly and camellia. Um, oh. And so there are a lot camellia of sort of being copies. a big flower right yes. like a chrysanthemum yeah yeah okay and um she there are a lot of tapestries that are potentially um attributed to her that that's sort of the one that's one of the main ones um but then there are people who today who recreate her tapestries 
you know, and others, of course, but like modern practitioners will frequently like recreate. Um, And this idea of patterns, there's this really interesting sense in tapestries, you know, not just in China, also in Europe, um, that a pattern, this is true of embroidery as well today, of course, right? That a pattern is something is itself a form of art, Mm -hmm. right? So the design itself is art. And then, of course, making it is art, <laughs> right? Um, so this woman, Zhu Keru, that usually spelled Z-H-U-K-E-R-O-U. Um, so her sort of um, genius in not just the weaving itself, which is clearly remarkable and gorgeous, um, but also in her sort of designs, um, and so that today, you know, the same way you might, it's a little bit different, right? Because you might just get like a poster of Michelangelo's, whichever, <laughs> Last Judgment or something, um, or even just a postcard, you know, mm-hmm. but in this case that someone might, you know, that you might pay someone to copy one of these designs um, and have it. This- I want to have a conversation with Benjamin about this, honestly. Yes. Yes. Because, like, this is obviously a form of mechanical reproduction, but a very artisanal one. But also, the original product is, in a sense, mechanically produced. So. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Um, That one was for all of you who really appreciate jokes about philosophy. Yay. Yes. No, but it's it's actually very true because there is the sort of question. Um, obviously, this was always viewed as an art form, mm-hmm. but presumably there was a time at which it wasn't because it it clearly starts with sort of weaving. Like, at what point did mm-hmm. it become like art, right? Um, and there, it does seem to have moved its way up the ladder in China from you know sort of beautiful art, but that you might wear it to the sort of art that you would hang on the wall like a painting, right? Um, so it, it does seem to have maybe evolved a little bit <laughs> um, mm-hmm. as it as practitioners sort of made it, you know, more and more and more artistic, essentially. Um, and there's a question of sort of where it came from. Um, maybe um, a little bit, maybe from the West, potentially. Um, and so the weaving traditions, um, of, you know, the Silk Road, of course, becomes super famous later. (laughs) And a lot of things go from China to Europe. Um, but there is, um, a question. Um, the Uyghurs might be the sort of origin of some of this weaving technique. That becomes seen as a very Chinese um, art form. Well, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, So that's sort of one of the current theories as to how it may have moved its way during the Tang Dynasty right into Mm -hmm. sort of um, what would be thought of as mainstream Chinese culture. Yeah. Cool. Um, mm -hmm. About time they got credit for something. Yes. Yeah. And of course, it's also worth pointing out that men tended to be the weavers as the painters, all of these things, which makes it interesting that we do sort of at least know of one woman who was a practitioner mm-hmm. um, and who was, you know, incredible and some of whose work apparently still survives. Yeah. yeah. So um, 
Yeah. So that's a fun one. And this is, of course, like I said, this is really, this is super high class. Um, and you can see videos of people doing it today online. Um, you know, it's just incredibly delicate, obviously, right? Because we're talking all silk and usually incredibly expensive even beyond that. So whereas in Europe, you would use, you if you wanted it to, re, to be really, really expensive, you would mm-hmm. use some silk and some silk threads that were like covered in gold and silver. That tends to be sort of the point of the tapestries in China, right? Um, mm-hmm. Is that it is, of course, all silk, and a lot of it is going to be gilt. Um, so very, very, very expensive. Um, and gorgeous, of course. All right. So, um, yeah, call out to that. Um, you can Google this, of course. We'll um, include some links to, to imagery. Um, but, yeah, it's really gorgeous. So I, I am definitely encourage people to look it up. Um, yeah. All right. So that's, that's China um, and the Uyghurs as well. Uh, very, very, very early practitioners. Um, Again, you know, that we actually have fragments of this, right? So, um, you know, people have been weaving forever, but right. we don't necessarily have tapestry fragments from forever. Um, all right, so another big one um, are the cultures of the Andes. So the medieval Andes in Peru. Mm-hmm. Um, this is frequently known as pre-Columbian. But I prefer kind of the term medieval here because, you know, even though it's a European term, at least it implies a time period <laughs> instead right. of like dividing everything into before and after Columbus. So, yes, we'll go with medieval, medieval Peru. Um, I always so think starting- about, hmm? oh, I mean, I always look at words like Colombian and think about the coffee. Like, it's Ooh. just my brain not yes. connecting Colombian with Columbus. I'm like, I know. So it was before they had their coffee in the morning. Okay. Got it. See, that would no. be so much better. <laughs> yes. <laughs> before and after coffee. Yes. Ugh, BC before coffee. <laughs> AC after coffee. Yes. Um, yes. That's also an important demarcation. Um, but no. All right. So here we go. Um, so the, the Wari, um, which can be H-U-A-R-I or sometimes W, but, you know, anyway. Um, so the Wari in Peru, they flourished from like five or 600 to about 10,000 or 1100 um, CE, um, and they have, there's, you know, fragments. So we've got um, just sort of incredible tapestries that they wove. Um, also generally reversible. Um, we'll include images again, but sort of really striking imagery. Um, and then they had wide vertical looms. So we are, mm-hmm. whereas China, it tended to be maybe a little bit smaller. I mean, not just, not like 10 feet from Europe, but also f- fairly small, right? Because you're working on silk, so we a couple feet by a couple feet or something like that. It could be bigger, but generally, you know, a little bit smaller. Um, at this point, we are back in the sort of larger, larger realm again. Um, so you could have very wide vertical looms. Mm-hmm. So that's, again, right where the warp go up and down, <laughs> and you're weaving through horizontally. Um, and these could be quite wide. 
um, and could be used for clothing, um, for coverings, probably for hangings and art. It's, you know, it's not always clear, um, but could certainly be, be used also for sort of clothing or for cloaks or for things like that. Um, and so the, the Wari are sort of in the, you know, the Andes have a lot of cultures, obviously, that show up that are somewhat famous. <laughs> um, eventually, obviously, the Inca come in at the end. Um, and tapestries, but they're being, they're tapestries that are being woven by all of the sort of cultures in this area. Mm-hmm. Um, and continue to be woven, right? So, uh, you know, certainly if you go online and look this up, we'll provide some images. Um, there is a lot of evidence of things that are from the medieval period before, uh, the Spanish show up. Um, and then there are definitely plenty of things from the early modern period as well, um, afterwards. So the, and the technique does continue today, for sure. Um, and so one of the things, of course, that scholars do is sort of, how did things change maybe before and after the invasion? What happened? Um, you know, the Spanish, of course, import their own techniques. <laughs> um, but they aren't actually that different necessarily from what's already being done locally. What's different is maybe the color and, of course, the pattern. Mm. Right? Okay. Um, the designs are different. Um, yeah. So it's one of those sort of interesting things where, um, and again, of course, unfortunately, the reason that we have some of these things is that the Spanish, (laughs) I don't know, I would say appreciated the art. This is not quite, but on some level they did, uh, and took these things and preserved them. So that is why we have some of this. Um, and then, of course, other things do get found by archaeologists, as usual. But, um, yeah. So there we have um, Peru. That's just one example. Obviously, there, there are other examples. Um, but that's another big area where there are a lot of sort of gorgeous things being woven. Um, and, again, the Did they technique- have any hmm? particular designs that they were interested in? Yeah, well, a lot of the things that you... I mean, I would say on some level that we probably um, recognize sort of as being from medieval Peruvian cultures. Um, mm-hmm. So there will be certain um, patterns and animals as well, right, um, that we probably recognize um, as being indigenous okay. Peruvian, South American. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, if um so probably like snakes or mm-hmm. yeah, jaguars. and sort of yeah, and you know, gods, of course, mm-hmm. <laughs> deities, um, you know that that might be connected to the sun, um, or to animals, yeah, um, and sort of really um, bright colors, probably. I mean, the colors tend to be pretty bright today. <laughs> yeah, um, so very. You know, and this is the thing also, this is true of all tapestries. Um, you know, whether we're talking the silk tapestries in China or the sort of wool tapestries in Europe or these tapestries um, in Peru, the colors tend to be very bright. If the colors aren't very bright, it probably means that it's been displayed for a long time and they've faded. Ah, um, which is why, okay. again, if you look at the back, <laughs> you might find out what the colors really look like. Um, and it's it's one of those kind of funny things where um, this is actually true even of the Bayou Tapestry. 
which of course is an embroidery, um, <laughs> that uh, there was a period. It was obviously always very, very well preserved, mm-hmm. which is why we still have it. But there was a period when, you know, and of course, when I say period, I probably, you know, like the 17 and 1800s, when, which is the same time at which um, there were some art historians, you know, specifically a few, uh, who, you know, they started digging up Greek sculpture that had been buried and realizing it was painted. Uh-huh. Uh, and so then there were sort of some art historians who were like, no, we cannot believe that they would have painted things these garish colors, which they absolutely <laughs> did, right? Because um, it was this push to sort of embrace what was ultimately a sort of stereotype, right, of what not just the past had looked like, but concepts mm-hmm. of beauty and classicism and whiteness, of course, right? So almost literally whitewashing all, all these things. Um And so (laughs) in the same period that they were sort of trying to keep the lid on, which they very successfully did, obviously, because most people don't Mm -hmm. know to this day that Greek marble was painted. Um, They kept the lid on a lot of things. In addition to that, there were people who disliked the Bayou Tapestry, essentially. They thought it was very garish. (laughs) Um, Which, of course, today it has faded a bit. They've restored it, though, and you can see online... Um, images that have kind of restored it. And you realize that, yeah, I mean, it's not particularly realistic. The horses are all fun colors, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were very put off by this. <laughs> right? Okay. Um, and it's sort of funny that this was the color work in Europe as well in the Middle Ages, just as it was in, for example, the Americas and ancient Greece, Right? Peoples have historically really loved bright colors. I like them. Yeah, I think for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, if you have color, if you can make dye, then you want it to be fun. I mean, this is sort of the point, right? Look at illuminated manuscripts. Like, they're bright and they're colorful. And, um, but this is definitely, there's this sort of sense um as you move into sort of through the Enlightenment, so right, that garish colors are somehow um, less civilized, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, and the fact that a lot of tapestries that had been hanging around for hundreds of years had faded, you can start to buy into this idea that Europe somehow doesn't go for that stuff, but these other cultures do. Right, which of course is not like, all true. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, like, I feel like this but, idea kind of persists to this day, right? Because you see people's photographs and whatever architectural digests of all their super minimalist white kitchen with, mm-hmm. you know, super white marble countertops. Yes. And then they'll show, you know, like, people's houses in... Places that are, I don't know, tourist destinations that are maybe considered more third world, where the houses are all painted cool colors and stuff, mm-hmm. and sort of like contrasting these ideas of like the the rich, super minimalist, whatever, and the right, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, absolutely, right. And so I think um, if we think of sort of South American art or indigenous art, really at all. Um, we do tend to think of it as brightly colored. And it, mm-hmm. it was. It absolutely was, right? So these tapestries, they're very brightly colored. Um, and yet, um, 
it's it's not the distinction by any means that we may think it was. Which anyone who's looked at anything medieval for even a second, you know, it's gold and colorful. But of course, what happens in the Enlightenment, right, is kind of this feeling that that, that is silly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, even look at Renaissance paintings. Um, they're incredibly colorful. Mm-hmm. So it is this weird sense. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. Um, you know, they're gorgeous. Yeah. And the, the patterns, the animals. You know, that's another thing, of course, is a lot of it's very symbolic. Um, and again, very, very influential when it came to sort of modern art. Right? I think we've mentioned this um, a while ago when we did all our sort of decolonizing episodes that modern art looked at a lot of these things, right? So did look at indigenous textiles from the Americas, um, looked at African art and sort of came up with all this sort of modern abstract art, right? Right. Um, And that a lot of it was driven by these other art forms. What's the name of that Philadelphia Museum? Oh, the Barnes Museum. Um, the Barnes yes. Museum. Yeah, go check out the Barnes Museum. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, um, he put together many collections of uh, modern impressionist, especially art, yeah. with various types of, I guess, indigenous art. Yes. And you can yeah. check it out. Check out the juxtaposition. Yeah. Yeah. And he put African-American artists also with like the other, you know, with European artists of the same period to sort of show how really they were influencing each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and cause African-American artists were frequently included at yeah. the time. And even frequently today until maybe a couple of years ago as like folk art or things like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I had no idea about until I visited uh, Monet's house at Giverne uh, was how deeply the impressionists were influenced by like the, Edo period floating world type of prints. And you can see some of them at Monet's house that he owned because it's, you know, all the stuff that he kept around to inspire him. Yeah. So that's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, Japan and China both were huge, huge influences on the arts of Europe. I mean, going back to the Middle Ages, obviously, Mm -hmm. right? The silk and the tapestries from China obviously start before people are doing stuff quite like that in Europe. Um, and it starts to get imported, and then Europe is like, ooh, we can, we can use some of this. Um, yeah. but yeah, and the sense of color, um, of course persists, right? So, um, but the sort of bold primary colors, right, of those designs and things, um, is something that we tend to think of, I think, as in indigenous, mm-hmm. um, you know, American. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, you have all these sort of wonderful designs. Um, the funny thing is we're actually going to talk about animals are really big in Europe as well, uh, in tapestries. Um, but it tends to be more, right, the abstract figure <laughs> versus the more realistically representative figure, right? Um, Europe goes from, you know, goes through phases, um, and it went through a very long kind of realism phase before coming back out the other end into its abstract phase because of looking around the world again. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we have, um, these other, yeah, great examples of tapestries. Um, so tapestries, 
you know, this is a global art form for sure. Um, this Should we talk about Europe? Said, yes. So in Europe, <laughs> um, generally wool. So this is what you know, we said. Um, but as you got more expensive, <laughs> you might be using silk as well, um, at least for like certain portions, right? Um, and then even, you know, sort of gilt, right? Gold wrapped silk or silver mm -hmm. um, for important details. Um, the big location, really, Brussels and the Netherlands. Um, this is kind of the center of the great, great tapestries. Other places also, I mean, everywhere is making them. So, mm -hmm. you know, Italy and Spain are definitely making things. Venice is doing some, you know, great stuff. Yeah, yeah. Everyone else, sure. Yes. <laughs> France. Um, but Brussels and the Netherlands, this is what we call them today. Okay. The Flemish weavers. This is, these are really, these are the big ones. Um, and so we actually have talked before about the lady and the unicorn. We talked about them in our animal episodes. Yes. Yeah. Yes, we did. Um, cause they're so much fun. Yeah. It's like six tapestries there. It's a series, right? So this is a story, um, that's hung up around the room or in a hallway. Right, so you mm -hmm. can get this story. Um, and I don't think I realized when we talked about them before that they were like an actual woven piece of cloth. I think I must ah. have looked at them and thought that they were, you know, applique or something. Right. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's really um, interesting. This is yes, this is what makes them. I mean, this is what makes any tapestry so amazing. Mm -hmm. Is that it's woven into the design, right? So you might have been wondering all this time, how do you do it? Well, there are a couple ways. <laughs> One way is just to trace your design on the warp. Mm -hmm. um, however, you can do that if it's a simple design. Sure. And if it's kind of small. If we're talking the sort of complexity that we get with a lot of the ones we're talking about right now, um, then what happens instead is you have a pattern or a template mm -hmm. that's known as a cartoon. Um which is just fun and exciting. Um, so yeah, you have a cartoon <laughs> that of course is that what we think of as a cartoon. It's a template. It's just, it's the pattern, mm -hmm. right? So someone has drawn, I mean, someone has made a painting basically. <laughs> someone has painted a painting um, and you either attach it underneath the warp or behind the warp oh, and then okay. weave so through on top of it. Of, yeah. Yeah. Or, in which case, what you get is, because then you are working rubber from the back and copying it, mm -hmm. so what you then get when you flip it around is a tapestry that's the mirror image of the original template. Okay. Does that make sense? Because it's like you're looking at it through the back. Yes. Um, the other thing that they would do is they'd tape it up, like, to the wall. I mean, tape it. Fasten it. They would fasten it to the wall <laughs> behind them pin it, actually, um, and have a mirror underneath, mm. like, you know, uh, behind the warp, and it would reflect into the mirror, and then you would copy it looking into the mirror. Okay. Um, so that obviously takes a lot of skill, because you're not, you're not just copying some, you know, you gotta, like a painter doing a portrait, looking at the thing mm -hmm. and copying it, right? So you're sort of copying it. But then, because you're copying the mirror image, when you flip it around the image on the tapestry 
looks like the image of the painting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if that okay. makes sense. Yeah. Um, that seems like a right. really complicated system, though. Yes. And probably um, also depends, you're like, you have to have a good mirror. Yeah. Um, and, you know, obviously, like, if you're as good as you have to be, then... Then you know what you're doing, okay. I guess is the point. Yeah. But this is why, obviously, you know, this isn't like your everyday artistic endeavor. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, yeah, so the Lady and the Unicorn, um, it's a series of six um, woven in Flanders, definitely, from wool and silk. Um, but the designs, the cartoons, were drawn in Paris, probably around 1500. Um, so this is, of course, at the Musée de Cluny in Paris. Um, it's incredible i mean you know it is it's incredible we talked about it before the animals are gorgeous um the i said it was a story but it's you know it's a series of allegories kind of um for all of the senses right so like taste touch smell um and the reason is you know for the title is because there is a lady and a unicorn <laughs> um okay. and yeah. the they're sort of the main characters i guess you could say um and the the lady and the unicorn um the point was like a virgin. This is, of course, also one hates to kind of keep mentioning J.K. Rowling because of the turf aspect of her boo. But in Harry Potter, it is worth pointing out, we do learn. I believe this is probably book. Is this book three? We learned from Hagrid, I think, um, that unicorns will only talk to or only, you know, uh, not kill girls, basically. <laughs> but when mm. they're baby unicorns. That then they're they sort of don't mind, so the boys can go up and like touch the baby unicorn. Yeah, was that no? Was that in book one? Maybe it's a book one. I honestly don't remember. It is one of those things that we we learn yes. somewhere along the way in Harry Potter. Um, and this is of course because the actual medieval legend, I don't know, legend mythology regarding unicorns is that um, they can be caught by a virgin. Mm-hmm. Somehow always a woman. <laughs> um, right. But that is why, you know, that that is not mentioned in Harry Potter. It's not explained why adult unicorns will attack boys and not girls. But anyway, that's the, that is the actual sort of medieval point behind it all. So um, this is why, right? The lady and the unicorn, this, so it's the sort of symbol of, Interestingly, it's a sort of symbol of her um, purity, essentially. But the at the same time, this sort of is this interesting sense because we have, right, it's all the senses. Um, mm-hmm. So, but in addition, right, taste, touch, smell, hearing, sight. And then the last one is my only desire or according to my desire alone, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is this interesting element right Mm -hmm. (laughs) um it's about it's very much about sort of courtly love and chivalry um and so this contrast right the sort of purity of desire but nonetheless the sort of right the contrast of desire and unicorns yeah well all the senses also right this is what the senses Ah. are right that's where desire we get desire that's where we get the sins usually (laughs) Mm -hmm. deadly or otherwise right um, but here it's all been sort of turned into its courtly, it's sort of pure courtly equivalent. 
Right. Mm-hmm. And of course, the sort of ultimate point of courtly love is that there isn't necessarily sex involved. <laughs> ah. Um, so, I mean, generally there is, but the sort of point is that there <laughs> doesn't have to be, <laughs> is uh-huh. generally the point. Um, obviously, Lancelot and Guinevere do sleep together, but that is, you know, is it then true courtly love? Eh, these are the questions. So, we'll anyhow. Address um, that in another episode. Exactly. Yes. yes. But anyway, so you have this lady and her unicorn, and because the unicorn sticks around, you know that she is pure. Yeah. Um, but it's, but it is nonetheless, it's allegory for desire. Yeah. So it's a sort of contrast of, you know, the, the purity of the image and also these other things. Anyway. Yeah. Super gorgeous, super detailed, just incredible. <laughs> and all these other animals, right? Like dogs and monkeys and all this stuff mm-hmm. floating around. Um, yeah. So they're super great. And as to our talk about bright colors, like they're red. Yes. Yeah. They are absolutely. Like mm-hmm. this gorgeous red color fabric in the background. So. Yeah. Yeah, and obviously, if you look honestly at some of the, like, Peruvian tapestries, um, this red is very similar to that red. Yeah. Oh. So, absolutely, yeah, the Middle Ages, you know, everywhere in the world, like, color is a thing that people enjoy, right? It's not until we, we start to get all this weirdness as we get into the Enlightenment. Yeah. Apologies to all people who specialize in the Enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs> obviously. All right. Um, but yeah, so there we go. Um, Lady and the Unicorn. Okay, next up, um, The Hunt of the Unicorn, which, if you are an American, is maybe a little easier to go see because it's in New York in the Cloisters, um, which, of course, is part of the Met, but not, it's the part that's, like, way up north in Manhattan. Um, so oh. go to the Cloisters, though. They're, they're awesome. Okay. They're super awesome and lots of fun. <laughs> um, and... Anyway, so we have um, The Hunt of the Unicorn. So this is a series of seven tapestries that deal with the hunt of a unicorn. So you notice what I said about animals. Um, yes. The animals themselves are very realistic looking, but they are just as allegorical in nature as any of the more abstract tapestries from, you know, South America. Um, so there are there are these sort of weird similarities of the sorts of things that, you know, that we put in art. I mean, this is what people put in art, right? These mm-hmm. are how we tell stories. Um, stories tend to be allegorical. So here we have The Hunt of the Unicorn. Um, and, you know, I mean, yeah, it's being hunted. So you get the series um, where you start the hunt, and then we see the unicorn, um, and then the unicorn is attacked, and the unicorn has to defend himself, uh, and then he's captured by the virgin, because that's how you do it. Um, and then he's killed and brought to the castle. Oh, dear. Yeah. But then the last one shows the unicorn in captivity alive. So okay. it's a little unclear, right? Is this a different unicorn? Has he kind of resurrected? You know, he is allegorical. He um, dead. He was just sleeping. Well. Maybe. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> um, you know. Okay. But yes, so here we have... You know, so this is the story. Um, and it's incredible. Again, it's incredibly detailed. It looks very much like a medieval painting, but it's a series of tapestries. The most famous one is that last one of the unicorn in the enclosure. Um, mm-hmm. Looking kind of, Yeah, you know, I think I've seen that one before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's super great. Um, it's made around the turn of the, f- you know, 1500s. <laughs> so kind of like... Okay. 
1495 to 1505, maybe? Somewhere in there. But yeah, somewhere around the turn of the century, of the 16th century. Um, and it's... The cartoon, again, is made in Paris, but it's definitely woven um, in Brussels, presumably. <laughs> so this is definitely a Netherlandish, um, mm-hmm. another another one, right? This is where I said where the big ones come from. Um, yes, it's woven in Brussels, but the Paris, the cartoon is made in Paris. Um, and again, it's, it's wool um, with silk. Uh, and also silver and gold. So, threads. Yeah. Looking at these, it's just so hard to believe how anybody could produce even one of these in, yeah. like, the course of a lifetime. Like, they are so detailed and so... Yeah. It's interesting, actually. The background for the final one, where the unicorn is in this enclosure that's just covered in flowers. It's just a flower, mm-hmm. you know... I mean, it's a floral background, but it's like this extravaganza of flowers. It reminds me, actually, of Kenda Wiley's Portrait of Obama. Yes. And sort of incredible floral background. It um, really does. And the symbolism of all the flowers, which, of course, is true very much in this one as well. Um, yeah, it's incredible to think that someone <laughs> could do this mm-hmm. weaving. I mean, even just stitching, it would be incredible. But the idea that you could do yeah. this weaving is is astonishing. At least with stitching, you could get somebody to help you. Like, I guess you can help manipulate the loom in different ways, but there's only one shuttle going through, you know. Right. At any one time. There's... Yeah, of course. Because mm-hmm. you got to tighten down all the threads. So you can't be yeah. having different people working on different parts because then it would be, you'd have yeah, gaps or weird. Be... And... Yeah. <laughs> be a mess. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, so this is another incredible one. Um, and then finally, I do want to mention, um, we have the Acts of the Apostles, which I want to mention because um, Raphael, the Raphael did the cartoon. Yes, the Raphael. Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, he was asked by the Pope um, to um, create the, the cartoon, the patterns for tapestries that would be hung around the Sistine Chapel. And, um, okay. I think Michelangelo was not super fond, maybe, of Raphael. Anyway, um, and he just finished the ceiling, I suppose. Okay. Um, so this would probably be before The Last Judgment was there, like, you know, obviously. Because um, that came afterwards. The ceiling came first. <laughs> um, and anyway, yeah, so Raphael was asked to, to do this, and he did the, asks, the Acts of the Apostles. Okay. And um, the Vatican has the original tapestries that were woven from the cartoons, um, but others have been made since. This is, of course, the great thing about having templates is that you can keep making tapestries from them. So the sure. originals were made in the workshop of um, Peter van Elst, which is one of the great, great weavers, of course, in Brussels, <laughs> um, between about 1515 and 1521. Um, and the Vatican has them. There are some that, you know, they definitely needed some restoration at some point. Something happened. There were some pieces missing. Um, maybe, maybe it was one of the points that Rome was, like, sacked or something. Anyway, so, um, but they've sort of been restored. And actually, they just, I think in 2020, it was the anniversary. Hmm, Raphael died in 1520, I think. So it was the anniversary of his death. And they put him up, you know, as a, they put them all up again, fully restored. 
cool. I think in the Sistine Chapel, actually, like, is a sort of, you know, a thing at his desk. It's but they do have, could have come them all. see it. Yes. <laughs> um, but anyway, but interestingly, the cartoons um, are at the Victorian Albert Museum. Yeah. Oh. Somehow, yeah, Charles I got them somehow in 1623, when he was still alive. Um, he died <laughs> badly. Anyway. Um, and, yeah. Yeah, he and then, lost his head, right? Yeah. He, he did, yes. yes. James did. Charles, Charles James. He was the he was the guy right before the um Cromwells. Yes. Yeah. Yep. The Cromwell. Not a great time to be a king in England. Yeah, well, I mean, if it had been someone else it may have ended differently. But anyway. Um but yeah, so he, he got them somehow. So the Victorian Albert Museum have the original Raphael cartoons. Um and so they're in England. Um, and also in England, the Royal Collection Trust <laughs> um, has nine panels of these tapestries that were woven from the cartoons, um, again, by a workshop um, in, in Brussels, um, Jan Rees and Jacob Goebbels, mm-hmm. um, and... In I think the in the 1600s basically, um, so they they okay. did, they copied them in the 1600s, um, yeah. So there we are. So there have been more copies made, <laughs> um, and they're in England anyway. As there are maybe other copies as well, but England England has a big chunk of this stuff. Not surprisingly, really, not surprisingly. Um, all right. So those are our real tapestries, but. And now we got to talk about the yes elephant the in the room. Yes. So, granted, this is not a woven textile, as the OED points out. We can still call it a tapestry. Now, some people have taken to calling it the Bayou embroidery. That's fine. But I feel like the OED adjusted their definition just because they wanted to include this. Um, no. They were First like... of all, it's been called a tapestry for most of its life. Okay. And the, and not, it's, it's the most famous example, but there are many other examples of wall hangings that are not technically tapestries being called tapestries. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and that is because, I mean, a lot of reasons, but one of them is simply that, um, the technical term of a tapestry that we use now as being only woven isn't something that was necessarily as straightforward in the Middle Ages. Right? Um, you know, you had a tapestry that was woven. You had a tapestry that was whatever. It meant it was a it was a wall hanging or a decorative piece mm-hmm. of cloth. Okay. It may have been, you know, partly painted, whatever. Right? You called it a tapestry. <laughs> it's only now when we get picky about these things in the modern era because we want to be very correct that we are like, no, you are not a tapestry. You are an embroidery. Aha. Uh-huh. And while that is true by technical modern standards. It is not necessarily true by medieval standards. Okay. Uh, I think it is. <laughs> the the Bayou Tapestry deserves to maintain its status as a tapestry if it wishes to maintain it. Because that's basically what it's always more or less been called. Right. All right. Um, All right. So we've got this piece of yeah. linen. Yes. Is it? That is like yep. 200 feet long. Yes. Like. It's yeah, it's 230 huge. feet long. Yeah. And it's got like 58 sections that are sectioned off with Latin titles, right, that okay. are stitched in. So you can read the story. 
right? So it's very much like a comic? it is actually like a cartoon. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's like a one-panel graphic novel, basically. Um, mm-hmm. I think Joe Sacco did one on, uh, I'm going to say World War One, where you unfold the whole thing. It's like the one battle, and he just did the whole thing in one big, long panel. Um, yeah, and that's what the Bear Tapestry is. So there we are. Um, but it does have sections with titles, so it, it fits, you know, uh, okay. Scott McCloud's definition of a comic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not just a cartoon, but a comic. All right. Um, so we, deter- we determined, I want to say in the last episode, that it wasn't just Queen Matilda sitting around stitching this while her right. husband went and invaded <laughs> no. Um, England. No, 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 This no. was done by a team Yes, it was definitely done. It was commissioned. So here's Probably the. Probably not by Matilda at all. Right. Basically. Um, here's the modern assumption um, is that Bishop Odo, uh, who is was the half brother of William the Conqueror, mm-hmm. William of Normandy, William the Bastard, whatever it is we want to call him, we all know who he is. He invaded England in 1066 and he became king. And that's kind of when England starts its history, <laughs> which is why we did all the series on, like, before 1066. Um, yeah, so Bishop Odo is William's half-brother. William made Odo um, the Bishop of Bayeux in 1049. Three of Odo's followers, uh, we know them from the Doomsday Book, which we talked about, right? This sort of accounting of everything going on in mm-hmm. England. There are these three knights who seem to have been, um, you know, part of Bishop Odo's entourage, I guess, right? Um, so they owed him fealty, perhaps, things like this. Um, and three of them are actually in the tapestry. So there is a kind of assumption that he actually commissioned it to hang around his cathedral. Okay. Um, and that he probably commissioned it pretty quickly. Uh, he was actually at the battle. He said he didn't shed blood because oh. he wasn't supposed to have as a bishop, basically. But he was there. <laughs> um, and we, okay. we do know he, he was there. Um, he's also in the embroidery. But um, yeah, so we know he was there. Um, he was made Earl of Kent in 1067. Remember, 1066 is when they got England. So, so <laughs> William had right made him away. Bishop of Bayeux and then he makes him Earl of Kent. Um, okay. And he seems to have occasionally served as regent when William went back to Normandy. Uh, sometimes he accompanied William back to Normandy. So, I mean, he definitely went back. But um, when he didn't go back, it seems like he was sometimes regent when William went back. Um, so he definitely, he was, he ends up sort of getting in trouble later a couple times and getting imprisoned and stuff. But for a while, he has a ton of power. He's obviously very, very close to William. Um, Bayou Cathedral is being constructed in the 1070s. So it seems like he um, commissioned this to sort of go up in his cathedral when it was done. Okay. Uh, and that seems to be the most likely, um, <laughs> the most likely thing. Because um, ultimately the first actual reference we have to the tapestry is in 1476 when it's listed in the inventory of the cathedral. Wow. That's like way later. Yes. Um, but it seems to have been there the whole time. <laughs> oh. Um, and, and just nobody wrote it down because it was just there. Right. right. It was just there. 
Um, it was obviously taken very good care of. Um, and it remained there. It had always been there. So then in like the 1700s, 1800s, people start to sort of figure, find out it's there, but it's displayed regularly. Mm-hmm. At least like once a year, they display it in order. So it wasn't exactly hidden, but anyway, um, someone does a detailed copy of it. Um, not, I mean, just drawing. Right. <laughs> right. Someone does a detailed drawing of it. Um, and yeah, it's about two, it's 230 feet long, 70 meters. Um, it's wool yarn embroidery at a woven linen, you know, flax background. Linen is flax. Okay. Yeah. Woven linen background. Um, and it seems, even though, of course, it was commissioned to be put presumably in Bayo Cathedral, commissioned by Odo, it was most likely made in England. Um, there are people who dispute this because they want it not to have been, because, of course, <laughs> you know, in the ensuing thousand years, England uh, became a bit of an upstart, sure. did some stuff. Other countries in Europe felt that they were not given their due by England. <laughs> um, Perhaps a feeling that continues to this day. Yes. England has a lot of stuff, and, you know, much of it which they have taken that they probably shouldn't have taken. People can feel annoyed when they claim then to have made something like this that seems so much like it should be French. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the problem is it just probably isn't. England was doing crafts very much like the I mean... This is where a lot of the embroidery happened. It's very much sort of English style. You can't prove it because Normandy, again, right? Is it Norman English or is it Norman French? Well, it can be hard to tell sometimes, right? But it does seem that it was made in England. It would have made the most sense, particularly because at this point, Bishop Odo really is hanging out in Kent. Um, so he would have presumably commissioned it there. It's where he is. Um, yeah. So it is, it is most likely, it is made in England, it is commissioned by Odo, made in England. He takes it back over for the opening of his cathedral, you know, puts it up there. It stays there forever and ever and ever. Um, you know, until now it's like specially restored and all that. But anyway, but it stays there for the next, you know, 900 years, basically. Um, but yeah, so that is, that is its story. Um, now we do want to say that it is really incredible it is worth pointing out that you may have noticed the 58 sections. It tells a lot more of the story than I think most people know, right? So it begins with Edward the Confessor as king and Harold okay. and William doing stuff together. Hmm. Um, one of the things they do, they like go off and they fight against Duke Conan of Brittany. Haha, <laughs> which I love. As one does, sure. Yes. <laughs> um, famously, Haley's Comet is in section 32. Ah, yes. Yeah. One of the early, if not the earliest, images of Halley's Comet. Um, So, yeah, there's all this stuff going on. Um, The actual, like, part that we know, right, um, Edward, King Edward, (laughs) doesn't actually die until sort of sections 25 through 28 show him, like, at his deathbed, dead, you know, being carried, dead, etc. So that's already, you know... It's 58 long, that's 25 to 28. So up until then, right, Harold and William have been, like, fighting together, stuff like this. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Harold gives, shows fealty to William, because um, they're fighting together, right? Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so then 
sections 29 to 30, right? Edward dies, gets buried, whatever, 25 to 28. Sections 29 to 30, Harold is crowned king of England. So this is Harold, uh, Earl of Wessex, right? Yes. So we talked about Wessex Poor Harold. last last time, probably? <laughs> uh, well, close. Yeah, we had eels yeah. in between, but yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Before the eels. Yes. Yes. It'll be episode, <laughs> around episode 50. Yeah. But yeah, this is Harold, um, yeah, Harold Godwin's son. Mm-hmm. Because that's who he is, right? Um, and yeah, I mean, this is, of course, the idea, basically, <laughs> um, did Edward, who did Edward really want to give the throne to? Mm-hmm. Um, Harold had been sort of the second most powerful man in England, really, because Godwin, his father, right? He's right. son of Godwin. Um, and so he was really powerful, and this makes, and basically, um, Harold is the brother-in-law of William. I mean, of William, of Edward. Sorry, of Edward the Confessor, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so there is kind of this question. Um, Edward, of course, had been, because of Canute, He'd been in exile in Normandy where he got to know William. And this is why this sort of, uh, you know, historically, who knows, he may easily have given both men the assumption, or certainly both men kind of had the assumption that they'd get England when he died. Right? William, because he, you know, got to, you know, there he was in Normandy helping out Edward when he was in exile. Mm -hmm. Um, And Harold, because he was kind of second in command in England while Edward was alive. And then Harold and William clearly did do stuff together. Which one thought the other one should submit? <laughs> right? They both kind of thought the other one should submit. Yeah. Which becomes the problem between England and France kind of from then on. However, and actually continues because the brother of William who ends up in Normandy uh, does want to take over from William, who is now king of England after William the Conqueror dies. Mm-hmm. Right? The kid, William doesn't manage to. Um, and Bishop Odo is actually part of some of that and kind of ends up getting kind of exiled out to France. But, um, you know, so yeah, it, that starts right away and continues forever. But, um, yeah, so here we have Harold Godwinson, um, you know, <laughs> crowned. Um, and the Battle of Hastings doesn't actually start until section 48. Oh, wow. So it's the okay. final 10 sections. Of of the tapestry. So there is a lot going on before we get there. Yes, there is a ton. Yeah. And, um, yeah. I mean, it's sort of this really funny thing, because that's obviously what everybody knows. And it's so famous. I mean, it is so famous, and it's so cool. And the horses are just amazing. <laughs> um, and, by the way, it's, it's all digitally up online. So, um, you know, absolutely. Like, we will link to it, but also you should look it up. Um, it's really brilliant. You can go through the whole thing. Um, and there's a, I think Wikipedia has a page that's like the titles or something. Um, okay. Anyway, so you can see them translated, um, and we'll put links up and stuff. But, um, anyway, yeah, so, um, but poor Harold, right? He's, yeah, he's Earl of, he's born in Wessex, he's Earl of East Anglia, he's, you know, he's got all these titles. Um, I think he becomes Earl of Hereford. Um, there was no reason, I mean, it makes perfect sense that he's, thought he'd be king and in some ways it's a chance that he wasn't right like mm-hmm. he could have beaten william and then history would be very different 
Um, or maybe not. I mean, really, it's hard to know. But, um, yeah, he gets, he famously gets killed in the battle. And that is another one of the things that makes the tapestry so kind of incredible. Um, is that we do, in fact, see him being killed in battle. Um, and he is being cut down. There are a couple figures people have maybe identified as Harold because uh, a couple hundred years later, people start saying, like, he had an arrow through the eye. Um, but the depiction of him dying in battle written closest to the actual battle mm-hmm. really has him li- very literally being cut down in battle. Okay. Because, um, you know... I think in our some of our discussion of Beowulf and things, we talked a little bit about some of the swords. Yes. Uh, we're talking about some medieval broadswords here. You know. <laughs> yeah. That's serious so, business, pretty much. Yeah, he gets cut down. So it's, he's this figure, um, he's holding an axe, and we see him like pretty much literally getting cut down. Um, the other interesting thing people may not know if they haven't really looked at this is that there, um, there's the main story that runs through it, and then above and below there are borders. Mm-hmm. Uh, with little animals, and here very much more sort of figurative, a little more abstract. Um, animals running through, other things happening. It's not always clear exactly what the story is. Um, These feel very and, much like medieval marginalia. Yes, exactly. So, like all the archers are lined up below the the cavalry as they sort of charge in um, in the battle. With the horses that, if you look at them, they're really amazing and gorgeous. Some of them are, but they are like, I guess some of them are maybe brown, um, but they are like blue and red. (laughs) Um, So you see how the, you know, the Enlightenment was kind of annoyed. Anyway, but I mean, they're gorgeous. They're obviously gorgeous, but this is what annoyed, you know, anyway, um, annoyed certain scholars, shall we say. Um, but I do want to say there's this really great moment, and we didn't get this in our last episode, which was about eels. Um, but around chapter 17, um, when Harold and William are going off to fight together, um, they cross a river, and there's quicksand. And Harold apparently really was sort of a great warrior, and he he's pulling these two guys out of the quicksand. And um, you can see this. This is... As I said, this is chapter 17. And underneath that, in the border, are these eels who are swimming to the left. Oh. Um, and there's a guy who's trying to grab one by the tail, and it's kind of getting away from him. Because <laughs> um, you don't grab them by the tail, you grab them by the head. You know, by the right behind the jaws, basically. That's how you get an eel. Um, so it's getting away that from him. Sense. Yeah, and there's a lot of questions about the symbolism here. Um, is it a sort of foreshadowing of how... Yes, Harold is getting these other guys out of the quicksand now, but England is about to slip from his grasp. Or, you know, people have allegorized, mm-hmm. theorized about this. It's not entirely clear. You know, you can... Who knows? Or is but it it's just a, really... a depiction of somebody fishing? Right, underneath, because they're at the river, you know? Like, <laughs> so that he's saving guys from quicksand, and maybe some other people are dilly-dallying around trying to catch eels, you know, and not being helpful. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, but there, but it's a sort of interesting imagery right there. Um, and cool. also a reminder of, unlike a lot of the other animals that appear on the borders, that we might sort of recognize, you know, birds of various types, obviously horses, all this stuff. Um, eels, as we sort of discussed last time, were a really, really, really important animal that maybe we don't think about as much anymore. Um, and what their importance might mean. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so there they are in the baby tapestry. Yes. 
Fun. Um, but yeah, but anyhow, yeah, so the Bayo tapestry, not technically a tapestry in the sense of being woven, it is an embroidery, but in the sense that it was used as a wall hanging, definitely, <laughs> definitely a tapestry. Nice. Yeah. Um, and a really incredible one that has a ton more going on. Um, so I highly recommend checking it out. Um, it's really brilliant. Yeah. Nice. Okay. And very memeable, of course. <laughs> yes. I, yes, I feel like they probably have been a lot of, yeah. Yep. Okay. <laughs> but on that note, we're going to have to call it there. Um, thank you for joining us. And thank you, Jesse, for talking to me about this. This is super cool. I knew nothing about tapestries. So this has been a big uh, Today I Learned sort of moment. Um, if you're interested in the podcast, you can follow us on Facebook. Uh, just search for Ask a Medievalist. You can find us on the web at askmedievalist.com. And uh, we have a Twitter handle, which is at Ask a Medievalist. Um, what else? Oh, yes, tell a friend about the podcast or just like rate and review us on iTunes. Pin a note to a tree somewhere. I don't care. Um, do something. Have a good day. Get vaccinated. Keep washing your hands and keep it medieval. Hey guys, this is M jumping back in. Um, if you've made it this far and you enjoy my contributions to the podcast, you might be interested in some of my writing. I write things like either dystopian or utopian sci-fi poetry, depending on how you look at it, queer historical romance, urban fantasy set in Madison in the 60s. Some of it will be coming out later this year, I hope, and I've started a newsletter so I can let people know when that happens. If you're interested in receiving those newsletters, go to tinyletter.com slash E-H Lupton, that's L-U-P-T-O-N, and you can sign up. I promise not to monetize you or disseminate you or anything like that, and um, I won't even know if you unsubscribe. So that's tinyletter.com slash ehlupton, and I'll put a link in the show notes. Thanks. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons attributional non-commercial license version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. 